Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 74 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this morning I noticed that my fella had loo roll on his shopping list and yet there were still two full toilet rolls in his bathroom. It's madness. That's very well organised. It's too well. I'm suspicious, Jen. It's more organised than I am. Yeah, I mean, I, I run out of toilet roll, then use up all of the wet wipes and then occasionally have to resort to kitchen roll before I can make it to Tesco. This is where you're moving in with him then, isn't it? <laughs> it's going to be great. Just <laughs> All your problems solved. I'm just going to come dressed at every occasion in toilet roll because <laughs> there's loads of it. Can't wait. And I'm Jen Offord and I have had no sleep because of anxiety of being on Charlton ticket buying duties. Thanks, Michael. That's my brother. For your hourly instructions over the last three days. I have appreciated those very much. But you did get the tickets. I did, yeah. I'll be there on Sunday. Then we'll be running a 10k the next day. So that will be fun. That will be fun. As Jen mentioned, we are. We're running 10k on Bank Holiday Monday and we are running it in aid of Abortion Support Network. So you should totally sponsor us. And the link is on our Twitter and Facebook. So please do go and give us some cash because last time I ran 10k, I was immediately sick. And I haven't done it yet. So So it's going to be excellent it's quite hot now in london and uh i'll be hung over as well so uh yeah what a treat we will be make um, it worth our while tell you what gary's gonna need that toilet roll um <laughs> <laughs> later on i catch up with sandra gamper and katie cager about their new podcast m's the word which aims to break the silence and stigma of miscarriage and baby loss i'm chatting to our music guru liz buckley about the undisputed queen of soul aretha franklin Emma Gannon comes in to talk being a multi-hyphenate and why it's the future. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be talking to outgoing UK sport chief Liz Nicholl about all she's been doing for women's sport during her time at the organisation. But first, the end of a terrible era, the start of a terrible era and a bin full of tears. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we don't have a smart arse opening this week, just the sound of me and Jen scream crying into a bin. Because there is no escaping that this has been a shithouse week for women. When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, then there's no doubt that this is a war on women. You probably think I'm talking about what's been happening in the States, and well, we will get there. But right now, I'm actually talking about Northern Ireland, part of the UK, people where the abortion law is stricter than what's just been brought in in Alabama. So, while I'm sure most of you excellent lot will know that abortion is illegal in Northern Ireland, it mostly flies under the radar that there is no exception for rape or incest, and punishment can be life imprisonment. In fact, the only exception is only to save the life of the mother, or if continuing the pregnancy would result in the pregnant woman becoming a, quote, physical or mental wreck. Great stuff. Well done. Great exceptions there, guys. Westminster has a duty to act, and you can tell it to do so by writing to your MP. Now for an I has made it a piece of piss to do this. Just go to nowforaneye.uk forward slash email, and there's a template that takes less than a minute to fill in and send. Please do. Over in the States, the rising wave of abortion restrictions looks set to go tidal, with Alabama's ban on abortion passing in the Senate. There were 25 yes votes, enough for the bill to pass easily. And every single one of those yes votes was cast by a white man. Not a uterus between them, but still a load of cunts. (laughs) No bones about it, not only does this put women's lives in danger, with poor women and women of colour disproportionately affected, but it gives the go-ahead to other US states to do the same. 
and they're already in the process of doing so. Okay, I'm I'm gonna guess it's no one who's listening to our podcast, but if anyone is on the fence about this, I mean, one seriously, but two, take a look at the emotional abortion stories shared on the hashtag You Know Me. This is a woman's choice. Trust women. Bad news for daytime TV enthusiasts this week. Good news for humanity after it was announced that the Jeremy <laughs> Carl show would be permanently axed. Hey, but wait. Let's look at the lessons learned on the way there, shall we? Is New- it always have a DNA test in your back pocket? Uh, not quite. The news came after Stephen Diamond, 63, was found dead days after failing a lie detector test on the show. In the days that followed, after the announcement had been made, it transpired that more of the show's previous guests had also taken their own lives. Erica Paulson, 36, killed herself six days after appearing on the show in 2005, and 31-year-old Paul McCarthy also ended his life three months after appearing on the show. Yeah. Now, it's obviously not that clear-cut, and it's fair to say that all of the people involved had problems in their lives, Mm -hmm. but the concept of making those problems basically sport for other people to watch and enjoy Mm -hmm. is... And always has been morally reprehensible. And while a spokesman for broadcaster ITV said, each of our productions has a duty of care and measures in place for contributors, it's worth pointing out that Paulson's husband has claimed neither he nor his wife underwent mental health checks before appearing on the show. It's also worth pointing out that two Love Island contestants, we've spoken about this before on the podcast, Mike Thalatesis, 26, and Sophie Graydon, 32, also took their own lives in the last couple of years after appearing on that show. It's just horrible. It really is. It really is. And it's so fucking obvious that it's not good for the people well, doing it. Well, you can it. see it on the show. It, of course. And if there's very little aftercare. Yeah. Let's talk about someone who might be a bit excited. And that is Brenda from Bristol, who must surely be delighted, as we have another vote coming up this week. Not another one! Another one, Brenda! Thursday, the 23rd of May, is the UK's voting day in the European elections. That's right, the European elections. Why are we even taking part? (laughs) No one knows. No one knows. Teabag and her disloyal band of fleabags didn't want to, but here we are, voting. Voters in the EU's 28 countries will elect 751 members of the European Parliament for a five-year term that starts on July the 2nd. If Brexit goes ahead, British MEPs will quit and some of the UK's 73 seats will be redistributed to other states, but the Parliament will be reduced to 705 members. Tactics-wise, because let's talk tactics, the Brexit party... Oh, 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 sorry. Oh. Windy Pops, has become the clear favourite of voters who are passionate Brexiters. Those who batch remain are dividing between Labour, uh, why, not sure why they're going there, Mm. the Lib Dems, the Greens, Change UK and the Nationalist Parties. Uh, As ever, tactical voting is risky business, but there are a few websites set up by Remainers that give pointers on who to vote for where if you are keen for the UK to stay in the EU. Some better news on the mental health front, which is that the Football Association, in partnership with charity Heads Together, has launched a new campaign called Heads Up, aimed at destigmatising the discussion around mental health. Don't know if you tuned in on Sunday, Mick? I did not. No, we did have a gig that day, in fairness. But the campaign kicked off with a BBC One show in which Prince William, who is the president of the FA, as well as founder of Heads Together, and apparently just a thoroughly nice chap. By See, he seems all right by royal standards. It honest. really does seem lovely, actually. I chatted to BBC Sport pundit Dan Walker, England football manager Gareth Southgate, a.k.a. my adoptive father. All of our adopted fathers. Mm-hmm. Spurs player Danny Rose and Peter Crouch, Jermaine Jenis and... 
Thierry Henry. Let's not objectify men, but just say, just say his name again. Vava boom. Prince, it was too much. It's too much watching him be sensitive. Anyway, do you know what the funniest thing was? They brought them out to meet some like normal people talking about mental health issues after they'd done all their chatting. And this guy, like his face just lit up. It was like a full on like love moment. And I could relate. Thierry Henry is definitely an equal opportunist when it comes to making people swoon, isn't he? Yeah. 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 Fucking hell, what am I saying, Mitch? That was a <laughs> bit of a, yeah. Back to Prince William. Yeah, Prince William, him, a.k.a. the Duke of Cambridge, said the aim of the campaign is to show that mental fitness is as important as physical fitness. He said, as FA president, I saw an opportunity to bring the sport I love that many men talk about more than anything else in their lives to help lead the next phase of the conversation. And as you will have gathered, I watched it on Sunday and I thought it was actually really striking that these uber-successful men all spoke about experiences that were totally relatable to, like body image, bereavement, failure, among other things. And it's a really great idea and a powerful campaign. And if you are listening and you have a son or a husband or a brother or a friend, I would fully encourage you to encourage them to watch it. Oh, that sounds like it's genuinely really great stuff for blokes. But elsewhere, it's great stuff for a man. Terrible news for humankind, as it seems Boris Johnson feels he is the man to rise Phoenix-like out of the UK (laughs) politics binfire, as he confirmed he'll be joining the Conservative wacky races and jostling for Tory leadership once Theresa May stands down. I, I just, Jen, pass me the bin. I just can't. I'm somewhat oddly going to take solace in the fact that Theresa May has said she will stand down once MPs back her Brexit deal. And frankly, that could be any time between now and fucking never. Still, uh, the bin, please, Jen, the bin. Yeah, no worries, mate. Would you like some good news, Mick? What do you fucking think? Yeah, I think you would. So, well, it's not often that we look to the fashion world for that. Sorry, what? Yeah. I know, but this week we are applauding French luxury fashion group Kering, who has announced it will no longer use models under the age of 18. The group owns several major fashion houses, including Gucci, in the news for other reasons last week. Gotta stop being racist, Gucci. Gotta stop. Saint Laurent and Alexander McQueen, and said that the new policy would come into effect in time for the 2020-21 autumn winter collections. I don't know why not now, but anyway. Kering's chief exec, Francois-Henri Pinot, don't know why I said it like that, said that the group was conscious of the influence exerted on younger generations by the images it produces and said it hoped that other fashion houses would follow suit. Meanwhile, Marie-Claire DeVoe, Kering's chief sustainability officer, said the physiological and psychological maturity of models over 18 seems more appropriate to the rhythm and demands that are involved in this profession. Shut up. Really? I mean, I can see why it's taken them so long to work this. Oh, no, 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 it should have, it no. Should have been obvious ages ago. More news, and indeed Hannah, next time. Hey. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where Hollywood gives with one hand and continues to take with the other. Let's head to the new Bond film and find some fish in a barrel. Because, yeah, yeah, I know 007 is often double O for fuck's sake when it comes to accusations of sexism. I mean, consistently calling grown-ass women girls and using them as disposable shag toys and plot devices for a kick-off. But let's go to the good news first. An intimacy coordinator has reportedly been brought in to ensure Daniel Craig and his co-star slash love interest, Arna de Armas, are comfortable while filming sex scenes in the new Bond 25 movie. Having an intimacy coordinator is a concept first initiated by actress Emily Mead, 
brought in by David Simon on season two of The Juice and then picked up by HBO in its entirety. And it is without doubt a good thing. Mm. Well done, Team Bond. It means Craig, 51, and Diarmas, 31, will feel much happier during that notoriously awkward filming situation. Oh, wait now. Let's just have another look at those numbers. 51 and 31. Now, I'm no maths whiz, <laughs> but that is a 20-year age gap right there. Good maths, Mick. Thanks, mate. Which I used a calculator and everything. <laughs> Which means as much as longtime Bond producer Barbara Broccoli is intent on, quote, making sure they're bringing Bond up to speed, everyone's still fine with Hollywood's love affair with older dudes romancing younger women. In real life, Big Danny Craig is happily hitched to Rachel Weisz, just two years his junior, which is refreshing when it shouldn't be and shouldn't have to be. If only Hollywood could ditch the ageism when it comes to women. I am not dissing age gap relationships, by the way, not at all. You do you, people. But by making heterosexual older male to younger female relationships the norm, Hollywood isn't, as a rule, actually representing age gap couples because the couples on screen are very much presented as the every couple. She just happens to look like she's much younger because that's what women should look like, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm covered in, what was it? Was it baby foreskin <laughs> serum? Gotta get gotta get those years off. That's what you've got to use, Jen. Oh, if only I'd known that's what I should be smearing on my mush. If you want to follow every aspect of our lives on social media, and why wouldn't you? Because you're only human, you can! We're on Twitter as a team at Standard Issue UK or individually on at Inspiragen, at That Dunleavy and at Mixter Noonan. And I'd like to think it'll be fairly obvious who's who. We're on Facebook as well at Standard Issue Magazine and even Instagram at Standard Issue Podcast. Come to us. Look at our faces. Hello, Mickey here. I am joined by our one and only music guru, Liz Buckley, manager at Ace Records. Thanks very much for coming in, Liz. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hi. Who are we talking about today? Aretha. Aretha. <laughs> yeah. For anyone who's been living in a bin, we do, of course, mean Franklin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Surname's <laughs> too familiar. Re to me. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> about with Re. So why are we talking about Aretha Franklin? Apart from the fact that she's well, yes, tremendous. There's always reason to talk Aretha Franklin, full name. Miss Franklin. Actually, she used to insist on being called Miss Franklin. It was a way of getting respect. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Indeed, we've, we've gone straight to it. Yes. <laughs> but today we're talking about it because there's some ultra-rare footage of Aretha that has recently come out at the cinemas, a film called Amazing Grace, which is the film of her most successful album, which never came out at the time. It's filmed in 1972. Uh, over the space of two days where she recorded the album. It was Warner Brothers and her then uh, label and her then producer, Jerry Wexler, that put it all together. Basically, the guy that directed it, I say the guy, you know, the Hollywood legend, Sidney Pollock, who's Tootsie and out of Africa and all that kind of thing, he'd never made a music film. So he didn't use clapperboards or any kind of <laughs> markers. And when they actually got all the footage together, it never synced up properly, so they couldn't work out what she was singing. And actually, Retha... Oh, I've got um, my head in my hands for Sydney. <laughs> Sydney, you must have wanted to just get in a hole and not ever well, talk actually, to anyone ever again. Well, actually, his family have asked that his name hasn't been put to this film, so I've done him a disservice by even mentioning him. Oh, really? But, yeah, I mean, you know, it says directed by, so it's not a secret. She's famously quite hard to have her lip sync to anything because she sings everything different every single time. Oh. So she always found miming incredibly difficult, so I imagine 
when putting this film together, that was also a problem. So she kind of always just went with the feeling and not sort of all the little intonations and everything that went with the same way of singing the song. A guy called Alan Elliott has very painstakingly put it all back together over a very long period of time. He's remortgaged his house twice. Was it worth it? It's phenomenal. It's absolutely glorious. I mean, they're calling it the most anticipated concert film of all time. It's Aretha's most successful album. It's kind of her at her peak. She's 29 at the time. And she'd made quite a few albums for Columbia. And they were never really... They weren't very good at song choices at Columbia. They didn't really know what to do with her. She can sing anything. So, you know, she could sing show tunes. She could sing jazz. She could sing folk. She could sing blues. She's singing gospel on this. And... Actually, it was a bit of a mishmash of stuff. And when she got to Atlantic, they kind of realised that the church was in her and that's where she should be. And when they said, OK, we're going to make a gospel album, she said, audience participation, let's do it as a proper service. And she has her dad there. Her dad, I'm sure you know, is Reverend C.L. Franklin, uh, massive in the civil rights movement. He was almost a pop star in his own right. He had sermons that were released like in the same way B.B. King would be released. You could buy it on single. (laughs) But they are those soul-swelling, powerful words, even if you Mm. don't believe that euphoria that they bring up. Absolutely, and she has that cadence of having a sermon when she sings, which is part of the reason it's such a release. You know, there's so much emotion. She obviously channels all this pain She had so much going on in her life. You know, her mum left at six, her mum died at nine. She was brought up by her dad. All of her brothers and sisters died before her. You know, so many of her peers and everything disappeared. And, you know, it all comes out in her music. And I think that's why people, even though, you know, people talk about what a diva she was and how unapproachable and regal, she's also so empathetic and so human that you've got those two things going on at once there's a brilliant line actually david ritz wrote her unofficial autobiography which is fantastic really recommend it she didn't approve of it at all (laughs) Um, always the best uh, he spoke to every single person in her life there's interviews with all her brothers and sisters her manager her booker all pop stars luth vandross everyone in her circle so the interview material is enormous and he says, you know, like Billie Holiday was always this sort of dying swan in a ballet. She was bleeding and she was dying. And that's the beauty of her music. Whereas Aretha is this phoenix from the flames. And that's what's so incredible about her sort of power. So, yes, this film is as amazing as you can probably <laughs> uh, expect. I mean, anyone who knows the album, it is above and beyond to see the pictures that go with it. It's an L.A. Baptist church. You've got people like Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts sitting in the back row, and it's literally by the by. Who gives a shit, really? I mean, nobody cares. <laughs> it's quite funny because they gradually keep moving towards the front during the course of the film. With, like Jagger's at the back, suddenly he's in the front row, dancing very badly. Yeah, oh, I think he, he was in town uh, recording Exile on Main Street, and basically people went, you should be at this, it's a happening kind of thing. But no, nobody really cares about them. <laughs> and... Um, Reverend C. Howard Franklin is there and he does a speech in the middle and Clara Ward is there who was his girlfriend to all intents and purposes although it was never explicitly said as much but she's this gospel legend there in the front row absolutely losing their shit. It's fantastic and it's got that... 70s thing of, you know, nobody's properly made up, everyone's sweating their asses off, it's overly lit, there's <laughs> empty chairs, it's, it's, there's a certain ramshackle amateurishness about it that's also brilliant because it feels like a church service, it's not a feature film uh-huh. where, you know, there are all these edits where it's like, oh, she's a bit sweaty, we better sort of sort that out or whatever. Oh, she was always sweaty, <laughs> a sweaty lady. Well, there's, a, there's a brilliant moment, actually, quite a few of the reviews that I've read all sort of say there's this beautifully tender moment where her dad 
mops her brow. You know, it's a lovely father-daughter relationship where he goes over. He actually throws a flannel full in her face like a pancake. So, yeah, total slap. <laughs> and then rings it out. <laughs> but she barely speaks in this, and she has that shyness of... Her confidence comes when she sings, and she's always said she wants believers, not critics, and so the church is actually the perfect place for her. Yeah, she's in her comfort zone. She's got both of her father. She's got the Holy Spirit and her real dad, you know, and that's kind of, she lets her dad sort of do the talking for her. And there's all these wonderful moments you see, like, you know, when she wants her voice to get more powerful, she crouches down and all the choir suddenly stand up and it's almost like a jack-in-the-box thing. And wow. to see to see it being performed is, yeah, really, really special. I think when you hear a voice... You can hear the physicality in yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So to actually see those images to match what you're hearing. Yeah, yeah, totally. And what's wonderful as well is the set list because Aretha was brilliant at sort of matching the spiritual and the secular. So you've got classic gospel choices that, you know, Mahalia Jackson or Dixie Hunningbirds or Swan Silvertones would sing and they would be classic church hymns. But you've also got my sweet lord george harrison she starts with holy holy by marvin gay yeah so this is quite unusual really for a church setting and she marries them all together there's a wonderful bit where uh, to put it in context it's 1972 so carol king's tapestry is enormous that year and she sings you've got a friend in me and that friend is obviously jesus and then she goes into precious lord take my hand which is my luther king's favorite gospel song and the choir and her swap between the two songs and they're both singing each other's song at the same time and it all melds together it's absolutely soaring it's fantastic so yeah you've got that kind of mishmash of finding the spirituality in songs that are modern she did that right the way through her career actually like Son of a Preacher Man, Dusty Springfield, that was written for her. And she initially said no because she thought it was disrespectful to her daddy. You know, Son of a Preacher Man, I'm not sure that's what you should be singing about. But she's so competitive that when Dusty has her biggest hit with it, she immediately (laughs) records it afterwards. And then uh, Let It Be, you know, Lennon McCartney wrote that for her. She thought it was too Catholic. She was like, Mother Mary, I don't think that's particularly a Baptist song. They got bored waiting for her to release it. They put it out. She immediately sings the shit out of it afterwards. Um, yeah, Ness and Dorma. Pavarotti <laughs> did, couldn't sing at the Grammys. He was too ill. So she goes out and sings Ness and Dorma and then includes it in a set of her after. So she's smashing the shit out of Puccini as well. You know? So is this telling us quite a lot about Aretha's... Sorry, Miss Franklin's Ms. character? <laughs> yeah, undyingly competitive. I mean... She would have blazing rows with all of her sisters, like, you know, expecting them to be on tap, basically, if they'd written a song and gave it to someone else or if they weren't available to sing backing for her. Mm -hmm. But also this huge loyalty. Like, people, they don't really admit the other side of her. You've got the diva side that everyone knows about, but she'd never really left Detroit for very long. And Detroit was an enormously depressed area. You think about the riots that were happening. And it wasn't a rich place to live, and she was obviously a millionaire. And, like, when her daddy was in a... I'm only calling him daddy because she did wrong not to <laughs> look I've grown very attached to him um, he, he was in a coma he got shot in a burglary and her and her sister Carolyn both moved into their old childhood bedroom and nursed him you think of Aretha Franklin the diva living in her childhood bedroom and they were literally like recording each other to prove the other one was snoring and stuff <laughs> so she could also be incredibly down to earth as well you know the family's everything to her really I think it's very important to mention respect the song Otis Redding uh, obviously wrote and performed respect before her 
But respect from Otis was about harmony in the home. So it was sort of like, when I get home, I want to have a harmonious family setting. And then Aretha took it and made it about civil rights and made it about feminism. And she changed the whole feel of the song. She's not pleading, she's demanding. She's not talking about a marriage, she's talking about society. She's the one that put in the sort of suck it to me's and the spelling out of the word and the call and response aspect to it. So, you know, that song is one of those things that's now a standard and that's what Aretha did to songs. She made them standards when they weren't before. The music's <laughs> obviously very subjective. It is very subjective. But there are certain artists, and Aretha is definitely one of these, that if someone doesn't like them, I don't trust that person. <laughs> yes. What are they hiding? <laughs> How can you not like Aretha Franklin? Unless you've worked with her. <laughs> you might have a well, few things no, to say still then. maybe like her singing. Yeah, oh that God. voice is incredible. That, that's something that's incredible about her, actually, is that she's totally unchallenged. Nobody would ever say that she wasn't the Queen of Soul. Like, mm. you might say, sort of like, who's the most amazing male soul singer? And you could argue for various different singers. You know, someone might say Sam Cooke or Marvin Gaye or Otis Redding or whatever. And there's, there's arguments for all of them, but nobody would say anybody other than Aretha. Aretha was the first woman to go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... She was voted number one best vocalist of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. You know, it's just one of those things where you're like, well, she's the best, and then we talk about everybody else. It's a given. Obviously, Aretha covered a lot of these songs, or songs were written for her, but does she write her own stuff as well? She certainly wrote some. She always called Carolyn, her younger sister, the writer in her family, but, I mean, she wrote Think, for God's sake. You know, that's hers. She always had a few that was hers on her albums for the publishing, I think. (laughs) Not necessarily the strongest, but she tended to be at her best when she channeled things that had happened to her into songs. There's a, a brilliant story in that book I mentioned, actually, David Ritz's unofficial autobiography. Unofficial autobiography? Unofficial biography, sorry. Where she's dating Dennis Edwards from The Temptations, and he dumps her. He's a bit of a player. He's going out with lots of people at once. They saw each other on and off for ages. And when he dumps her, she immediately goes to the piano in front of him and writes Daydreaming. Wow. <laughs> she's like, this is my reaction to you. That is what she does with life, you know? It's so recent that we lost her. It was only August. It feels yeah, less than a year. Yeah, and only seventy six as well. Imagine if she kept going. Even towards the end, her performances were still incredibly powerful and incredibly physical. Still, thanks so much for coming in to talk about a genuine legend. Next time you're on, we are going to be talking about Chrissy Hind. We are, yes. Chrissy's got something going on later in the year, which we'll be talking about. It'll be fun. Awesome. I look forward to seeing you then. Yeah, lovely. Thank you for having me. Hello, Hannah here. Just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do, you can help us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. It really does help, especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. I'm joined on the phone by Sandra Gamper and Katie Cager. Sandra is a GP and Katie is a pregnancy loss support mentor and together they are hosts of a new podcast, M's The Word. Now you kind of draw us in with that title, but it's not the cheery subject you might be expecting. In fact, I mean, it starts with your experiences of miscarriage. Katie and I have both had our own experiences of miscarriage, so... Me, myself, I've had four miscarriages before giving birth to my son last year. And I started a blog to write about it and an Instagram account to kind of document that as well. And through that, I met Katie. Yeah, so I've had eight in total. Luckily, I've got two healthy girls, but I went through eight miscarriages in the process, which was awful. 
And because I didn't get the support I would have wanted, I felt like there was a need out there and I could be doing something to, well, improve the situation for other mums going through the same thing or other women in general and couples. And yeah, so I was on Instagram and I found Sandra when I put out a call to action and I was looking for like-minded women and Sandra responded and we met up and really liked each other and <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about about why you started the podcast? Obviously, you've both had your own experiences of it, but you've sort of said a bit about how there's a lack of support for women who've had miscarriages. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, we think just over the years, miscarriage has been such a taboo subject. It's something that's not spoken about. And I think both of us discovered when we'd had our miscarriages that it was, you know, so many women had experienced it, but didn't feel able to talk about it. And so we wanted to create a platform, a safe platform, where we could discuss miscarriage, Mm. share experiences and by that, hoping to increase awareness and understanding. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think by sharing, it's such a special and powerful tool, isn't it? Sharing your story and podcast has a great reach and it's quite anonymous because it's such a taboo subject still people are much more willing to come forward and talk about their experience when they can't be seen and and judged you know it's been quite rewarding actually for both of us we've had so many messages of encouragement and support and uh, such great feedback yeah and really just we're just trying to break the stigma and remove the shame as well which I really felt with my miscarriages I mean I wanted to pick up on that point a little bit about you've you've both sort of said you know words like shame and and taboo and I think this was in your first podcast you'd sort of mentioned something I always thought was a bit odd this idea that women aren't supposed to talk about pregnancies until they're 12 weeks in because there are so many miscarriages in the first 12 weeks and I've always sort of thought well that's weird because if that were to happen to me I'd kind of want to be able to talk to people about that I'd want them to know that that had happened to me you know not not necessarily the whole world but the people in my support network do you think there is a shame in miscarriage for women like somehow you weren't able to do the thing you're supposed to be able to do exactly yeah because I think society has taught us from from day dot that a woman's job is to you know to have a baby and and you know reproduce produce offspring and if for whatever reason you're struggling to do that, be that through miscarriage or infertility or, or fertility problems, then there is a real, I think there's a real stigma attached yeah. to that. And some people actually even say the name miscarriage suggests that it's a woman who's mm. failed to carry a baby properly. So some people even have an issue with that word mm. and so choose to use terms like pregnancy loss or baby loss. So we're just trying to open up the dialogue about the topic of miscarriage as well as, I suppose, look at the language of it as well. Definitely, Um, yeah. Because that's an area I think everyone, we all can improve on, really. Mm. Well, it's kind of like, oh, you won't want people to know because if if you can't carry the pregnancy, then then you'll be embarrassed. That's sort of how it feels. Do you think that is still the view of society? I, for me personally, I felt we both said it as well. You feel like a fool if you announce your pregnancy, you get everyone excited, you know, and everyone rooting for you. And then you go, ah, by the way, didn't happen. And then nobody knows what to say. And then you don't talk about the 
baby you've just lost ever again it's just you know dismissed entirely it's it's awful it's it's so awkward for everyone and that's where we come in and we sort of advise as well what to say what not to say there needs to be so much more awareness and empathy around this whole thing yeah a lot of people when they go through miscarriage because they've not told anyone it's a kind of silent grief Mm. you've not told anyone so you've got no support and you're there grieving for a life that you've you've dreamt of really that's been taken away from you so it's it can be a really lonely time and so we're hoping that our podcast just by sharing our stories of of loss and of grief can help provide support to other couples and and women out there. Sandra you're an NHS GP yeah so you'll be obviously very well aware of the current framework for mental health issues in general as in there's there's really not much going on there at the moment. How does it feel from this kind of perspective when you're talking about baby loss and miscarriages? Is that picture any different? Is there anything more specific available? I mean, I think personally, my experience was actually quite quite positive. I was supported quite well. So when I had my third miscarriage onwards, I was supported by a an early pregnancy counsellor who's also a trained midwife. So she her job was to counsel women who had experienced um, miscarriage, and I saw her for quite a while but when I spoke to other people I then realized that that support didn't exist everywhere and really it should I mean I'd love that to exist nationally but I also do appreciate the resources within the NHS are are limited but there is still scope to signpost to great charities doing work out there and providing support for women that perhaps other GPs and other healthcare professionals um, can just support women and couples too if they're unable to provide the NHS support themselves. Do you think you were more aware of where to find that support given that you do work for the NHS? Yeah absolutely I think you know knowledge is power and I was very lucky to know what my next steps were um, in terms of when I should have been referred, what blood, what investigations I should have had. I do appreciate that not everyone has that insight. But the, hopefully the more we talk about it, the more people can feel informed and empowered should they ever find themselves in, in this situation. You mentioned couples then as well. This is something that affects two people. Well, not always, obviously. What about men? What Are you sort of talking to men about their experiences of this? Because I imagine there's a certain feeling of powerlessness for men in this situation. Yes, definitely. We are going to have couples on board who are willing to share their experience. And we have my husband on board as well, who's willing to share his. So... It's definitely something so unmanly to t- talk about. Maids don't talk about these things. You know, they can meet up for eight hours and, and not talk about anything specific. <laughs> and then you ask, you know, how how is Dave? And he goes, well, fine, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> we take men on board and couples on board and give them that platform where they feel like it's completely okay. I mean, in in my story, I talk about sex and I appreciate and and my husband had many messages and calls from his mates saying, wow, that was incredibly brave, you know, talk about your sex life. It's, it's, yes, I appreciate it's delicate and it's intimate, but it's the truth. I mean, it was crap around that time. It was awful. And other couples struggle too. And if nobody ever talks about it, I mean, you know, it's, that's the whole point removing the taboo removing the stigma because you do suffer as a couple if you have a functioning Mm. dynamic relationship then it's it's rubbish seeing your partner struggle i guess the thing about baby loss and miscarriage particularly 
is that unlike situations where you're bereaved, there is a sort of tangible person to grieve. Do you feel like people take it less seriously? Because maybe they need to. Yeah, I do. I think we've both probably heard phrases like, um, well, at least it happened early. Oh, my God. Which, yeah, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. But, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that people do say, probably with quite good intentions, but those words aren't the right ones. And I think it's because people think because you've lost the baby, say it 10 weeks or it's six weeks, that you've not bonded to that baby. Whereas what we're trying to put across in our podcast is that as soon as that pregnancy test shows that it's positive, your life has changed. Mm. You already see yourself as a mother or you see yourself as parents. You've already kind of thought about your maternity mm. leave, due dates, all of that changes as soon as a positive pregnancy test happens. And so when you miscarry, I think there's a misunderstanding of, of the impact of that loss because you haven't physically held that baby. You get no birth certificate. There's no death certificate. So legally, the baby hasn't existed either. Mm. You may or may not even have an ultrasound scan yeah. picture and that's it. I do feel because there aren't these legal or medical tangible bits of evidence that the baby existed it can be thought of as not as serious but there are some charities as well who look to help women and couples make memories in other ways which could be a good thing as well it depends on the individual really as mm. to how much you want to create memories or not do you have any idea how many women are affected by this and also, were you given a reason as to why this had happened? Or were you just sort of told, oh, this is just one of those things? The most common statistic that we hear is that uh, one in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage. That's a lot. Uh, that is a lot. Hmm. So there's this thing with the NHS that you have to have three recurrent miscarriages to be able to be referred to a specialist. Yeah. Um, which is quite a long time and an awful mm. wait and a traumatizing period for most people. So it happened really late when they actually got me referred and diagnosed. And it was such a simple fix. I've got a blood clotting disorder. It's nothing too dramatic, but obviously it's been having this massive impact. So we're talking about factor five Leiden. It's the, there's a mutation in a gene which causes your blood to clot. It's a thrombophilia. So it can cause things like blood clots in the legs and in the lungs or can present as recurrent miscarriage, which is what... The that's... risk of a miscarriage is three times yeah. higher, I think. I think it's one of the more common causes of recurrent yeah. miscarriage. So eventually I was given a reason which was some sort of relief for me personally because I'm quite logical and rational and I always... I like a proper answer. Mm. <laughs> Well, who doesn't? But I guess also, I mean, I imagine a lot of women are just told, well, it's just, you know, this happens quite a lot. So, you know, sorry. Is that the case? I think a lot of women are told that. So my initial investigations were um, normal. And then I went to a specialist kind of research clinic and trialled some medication with them, which we think is the reason why I was able to carry my son till term. You know, it's an area of research and more research is, is needed. Um, and that's another one of my passions here mm. is to increase awareness so that more funding really can happen for research. Because um, you mentioned in, in your first podcast that, you know, you're, you're a GP, but also you have an interest in women's health in general. And there mm. does seem to be a real lack of knowledge about women's health in, yeah. in a lot of different areas. You know, there's this thing that I always talk about on the podcast. There was a story in the news a few years ago about how they found that average experience of period pain, it was comparable to a cardiac arrest in terms of the pain. Oh, wow. And yet they still don't really know why 
period pain happens. Now, I always think, like, if, if this was something that affected men, <laughs> there's no fucking way they would have known why it was happening. Like, they'd have, they'd have looked into that shit, you know? <laughs> I think historically in medicine, it's been a very male-dominated profession. And I think that comes across with lots of the terminology, particularly for the womb and, hist- you know, hysteroscopy. The word hystero, well, it's very male-dominated. So I think nowadays, obviously, there are lots of prominent females within medicine. And I think there is a need for females just to continually talk about um, issues that affect us, really. And I, and I think particularly on social media, but there are women who are championing things for better birth experiences and a lot of campaigning for endometriosis and other kind of women's health issues so hopefully the more we talk about it the greater visibility they'll have and the greater funding awareness research treatment etc well <laughs> which i mean of course talking about it is exactly what you're doing on the podcast and you've said that's sort of what you hope to achieve is to to break the taboo and to get more people talking about it which is really important and you know i absolutely applaud you for doing that because it's not easy to tell the world about these deeply deeply personal experiences so what else can we expect to hear on the podcast we're gonna have dads talking about their experience um we're gonna have couples interviewing each other which is going to be quite interesting insightful we're going to talk to yoga experts that can teach us a trick or two about breathing and grief and loss and well how you can show self-compassion and overcome that tricky time with like the right techniques so it's going to be a very holistic approach we're going to talk to charities and just in the spirit of increasing awareness destigmatizing raising funds for the right institutions and organizations it's going to be yeah interesting an interesting mix i would say what advice would you give to anyone who has been unfortunate enough to experience miscarriage or or to someone who knows someone and they want to support them properly my advice would be talk talk as much as you can because there's this beautiful quote by Brene Brown shame derives its power from being unspeakable and you know you can only feel shame if you're completely embarrassed and it's something that shouldn't be mentioned in society so the more we speak about these things even within your family it starts with your family with your partner to tell them how you feel or her and And then the more you talk, the more other people know they're not alone either, which is such a powerful message. Where can we find the podcast and where can we find you guys on social media? You can find M's The Word podcast on all your usual podcasting apps. And we're on all the usual social media. You can find us on Facebook, M's The Word, on Instagram, M's The Word podcast and on Twitter, M underscore is the word. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Would you like to see our faces? Yes, you would. Mickey is making a face at me right now. Oh, imagine if you could see the face I was making. It's extraordinary how I can stretch my features to such grotesque (laughs) proportions. Well, come and see our faces on June the 8th at the Underbelly Festival on the South Bank in London, where we will be in conversation with Jane Horrocks and more guests TBA. We're also back in Edinburgh for the fourth year. And I mean, seriously, last year we got Janine Garofalo and Sue Pollard on the same stage. There's never been such times, but there could be such times again, but with different people. Anyway, there's a way to find that out, and that is to get yourself some tickets. And tickets to all of our shows are available on our website, www.standardissuepodcast.com. Check it out. 
Check us out. Buy a ticket. <laughs> Thanks. Hello. We, and by we, I mean me, Mickey, and... Me, Jen. Hello. ...are joined by author, broadcaster, and fellow podcast host, Emma Gannon. Hi, Emma. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for coming in. There's quite a lot going on in your intro. You should, uh, you know, come up with a term for that. Oh, well, funny you should say that, because, you know, I found 80,000 words on the topic, so I was so frustrated of, uh, you know, not being able to answer that question, what do you do? So I was like, I, I know, I'm just going to write a book about it and hand it out to people. So the book is called The Multi-Hyphen Method. Could you talk us through what it means to be a multi-hyphenate? Yes. So a multi-hyphenate is definitely something that has already been out there for a long time. I think the portfolio career was coined in the 80s. And I mean, people have been doing this for years and decades, probably centuries. But I just felt that there wasn't this modern kind of guidebook, handbook, fun book talking about how it's actually can be a really good thing. Mm -hmm. But for so long, we've... We've called people, you know, jack of all trades or made people feel bad about being multiple things. I mean, women are lots of different things. We have always been many different things at once. So I just wanted to celebrate it really and just say, do you know what? If you have loads of different things that you're doing and you feel bad about that, don't feel bad about it anymore. You mentioned jack of all trades and you're right. It's been for a long time. It's been considered sort of a sly put down on people, but it's really changing. And are we seeing that difference in the way employers are recruiting and the way employees or potential employees are putting themselves forward for jobs? Is it making a change in the real world? I think so. I mean, I don't really meet anyone anymore who doesn't have a sort of side project. Like, Even if you love your job and you have a nine to five or you are amazing at one thing, like you're a lawyer or you're a doctor or like you genuinely have like a very serious job, we as human beings are just more interesting than our full-time jobs. And I just, I just meet so many people now who have a blog or have a podcast or like to draw on the weekends or like gardening or like painting. And I just, I think if we're going to be freaked out about the future and that robots are taking over, et cetera, et cetera, I think we need to celebrate creativity and just celebrate everyone being multiple different things. So I didn't try and start a movement, really. I just wanted to write a book celebrating like a lot of people that I love like Nora Ephron for example who was like a director and columnist and writer and mm-hmm. um, the woman oh, I can't pronounce her surname which is awful but I think she's called Hanya but she wrote A Little Life and she's also so she's like a man booker award winning novelist but she's also a fashion editor of like a glossy shiny magazine and those are two just like examples of people in the media but I love people who have just quite a lot going on and you can't really define them and you can't put them in a box and I really identify with that. So I thought maybe like 15 people would buy the book and be like, yay, me too. And I would just like meet some nice people. But what's happened is actually the research out there on the BBC, which is like 80% of jobs haven't been invented yet. And like 80% of people will have three different jobs by 2050. It's like that does sound quite negative because I don't think people should be working 17 different jobs to make ends meet. But at the same time, it's just so happened that this book I wrote is like matching up with quite a lot of research. Like I didn't plan that, but it's just happened. There seems to be an assumption that this only relates to millennials and generation Zers. Zers or Zers? Zers. Zers. Yeah. I don't think that's true. I didn't want the book to be a millennial guide. And uh, like when I had the meeting with the publishers, it was like a strategic decision to be like, let's uh, try not just hit millennials with this book. Because I think actually 
they will probably buy it but this is actually a book celebrating all different types of people and also I didn't want the book to resonate with just some people in London in the media like I wanted someone outside of that bubble to really get something from the book like that that was success to me to for, for some student you know in the outskirts of Scotland or something to read the book and go oh cool I really identify with this so it needed to be for everyone but it was so funny because I did Hay Festival when it first came out and everyone knows Hay Festival uh-huh and it's like that I don't know what the demographic is of that festival Gosh, but I think yeah I mean it's older as well yeah. I think and, and you just know. put it out there when Sarah and Hannah did yeah. Hay Festival to talk about Standard Issue someone in the crowd asked a question and their accent was so posh that they had to get Marcus <laughs> Brigstock to translate what had just been asked of them oh my god that's hilarious <laughs> I know exactly the type of posh you mean where it's like you just shook your head and like dribbled at me it's just just noises like animal noises <laughs> emitting from your well made up face just vowels yeah. it's like watching um just like parliament but um (laughs) i went to hay festival and i was interviewed by clemency burton hill she chairs a lot of panels at hay and i was confident with the interview but i just thought no one's gonna come like this is hay festival i've written this book people are gonna think it's for millennials they're gonna think i'm just annoying millennial 300 people came they all bought the book pretty much afterwards and they all were like this is great and they weren't like oh I'm going to buy it for my cousin or my dog or my daughter or my son (laughs) or my you know not loads of people do that which is kind of weird they were buying it for themselves and saying oh I just quit my job in the city I've been working I actually want to retire soon this is the perfect book for me and I was like oh my god this is the perfect book for people retiring we had Marina Gask who has founded Audrey this website for so women over 50. Women oh, over 50. Cool. And about how they are sort of rejuvenating and yeah. becoming one of the biggest demographics for going, fuck what I'm doing now, I'm going to do something really do exciting this. and new. Yeah. going to do that. It's just going to take up this, that and the other. So, yeah. And she was sort of talking about how, like, retirement or whatever can really, like, spur on that kind of... Yeah, exactly what you're saying. And I find that so inspiring because I always think... We are so obsessed with youth. We are so obsessed with, like, 30 under 30 lists. And it's like, you can re-identify, just totally take a new path and rebrand yourself at any time. And someone said to me the other day, they were like, even if you find a new career in your 40s, you can still become amazing at that thing for 20 20 plus years. I think you touched on it earlier as well, in that people really want to put other people in a box. So if you meet at a dinner party and you say, what do you do? And it's taken a sentence rather than three words. People are like, oh, is that, is that sounds like it's not a good thing. It must be quite hard. You must work all the time or you've not got focus. So there's very pejorative assumptions made. But actually, all that means is people have been hiding a shitload of themselves outside of the box and just not bringing it into work. Totally. So people have had hyphens for ages and ages. You're just freeing them. Yeah, you're just not hiding them. No, you're just freeing them, Emma. You've (laughs) you've allowed people to free them. Mm. Well, I hope so because, and I think this about myself, you know, I've been in a job I didn't like. We've all been in jobs we don't like. And it's crazy how time moves very quickly and you can look up and five years have gone past and Mm -hmm. unless you do something because at the end of the day we're all responsible for our own lives and unless you kind of take that first step you could just be on a path that other people want you to be on and this happens so much when people come to my events they're like I really want to do something but like my my dad will be disappointed if I don't just do this one thing or my university told me that I should be an expert in this one thing I'm like you don't have to it's just this annoying cultural thing also, your dad probably wants you to be happy, ultimately. So, 
you know, he won't be that disappointed. Yeah, I hope so. It's a lot of young young people that come along, and I, I think they're still sort of trapped in this mentality that their parents had, which is like, climb the ladder of success and do it the way it's always been done. I think it's kind of interesting, because I used to be a civil servant before I started doing this, and I got into this, basically, I got into journalism by blogging. I decided I was going to basically effectively make myself redundant from the civil service. And I sort of chatted to my parents about it and I was totally ready for them to be like, you are a fucking idiot, what are you saying? And my dad was just like, do you know what, you're pretty resilient, you'll be all right, just do it. Like, who wants to be miserable for the next 30, 40 years? Just leave. That's really good. I mean, I I hope most parents are like that, yeah. It's just weird, it's that worry, isn't it? Because at the root of parents or whoever Mm. questioning your decisions is just like oh that doesn't sound very safe or Mm. you're out on your own doing this multi-hyphen career like that sounds really scary and actually in the book I talk a lot about how this idea of security has flipped on its head because I think and this might be controversial but I think at the moment in the time we're in at this like mass crisis point of like the world where you trust no one um (laughs) having a job one job, one income stream, I don't think that is as secure as we think yeah. it is. That's like one person pulls the rug from under you and you're a bit screwed. Whereas now I genuinely just think, well, I've got about five different projects on the go. I don't think one is better than the other necessarily, but from my point of view, I feel a bit safer. Can we talk a little bit about the practicalities? Because I think if you say to some people, oh, I've got five different projects on the go, they will just be like, oh my God, you must never have any downtime. Mm. And the tagline for the multi-hyper method is work less, create more and design a career that works for you. So it's very much about taking that time for yourself. So how are you doing the work-life balance? You definitely have to know your limits. You can't just add on stuff. Like that's kind of not how the multi-hyphen method works. Like you can't just be like, okay, on, on to the pile it goes. <laughs> another project, another project. You're just like keel over. To be honest, it's still a learning curve for me because things change the whole time. But that's the whole thing. It's always moving. It's always changing. You've got to get to know yourself very well. You've got to get quite good with your finances. When I had one salary, it would just come in, go out, come in, go out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a huge salary, but I was just so complacent with it. I'd like, spend it all in the first week and just like live off noodles. It's well, a different <laughs> way. <laughs> I, used, way. I mean, that was my way. And now it's definitely, you know, I have like maybe four to five max different projects but one will ramp up and one will be quite quiet and then the other one will ramp up but for me it's like I pretty much dedicate one day a week to each project it's funny because a lot of people get confused they think that when I say multi-hyphen I mean multitasking which is not at all what I'm promoting multitasking is the worst thing for your brain like we all know when you've got loads of tabs open on google and you're just like Nothing went into my brain. I've just read 17 different articles. You have to sit down and read one thing or do one thing. And so um, I have a podcast. As you know, I've got this new column starting soon. Do events, do some interviews. I really have to dedicate my time to one thing at a time. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about is that self-promotion is clearly key in being a successful multi-hyphenate. But there's still a very much a, oh, God attitude towards self-promoting so how do you self-promote and not have that icky feeling yeah it's a good question because if it feels icky it's like you're not doing it right okay that's what I think because if you're really kind of like oh this is making me feel physically ill then there is something wrong with the the way you might be doing it because it's not natural to you I mean people who hate Twitter and like 
literally have to force themselves to write a tweet. I'm like, don't go on Twitter then. It's not your, it's not for you, maybe. Maybe a newsletter or maybe, I don't know, just having a website or maybe it's Instagram. I don't know, but it's like you kind of have to find your own natural home and your own natural way of doing things. And for me, I always tell people, you know, if you've worked on something you're really proud of, you should kind of want to tell people about it. And the way that you tell your friends in the pub, like, oh, I've just worked on this project, it's really cool, do you want to see it? Just that's the way you should say it on social media. Like, here's a link if you're interested. You know, you don't have to do a big song and dance about it. But I think as well, people get kind of, they get confused when I say self-promotion because they think I'm saying you kind of have to be like an awful person. Hand out T-shirts with your face on it. Yes. And like putting selfies up every day, being like, I'm amazing. For me, what it comes down to is my dad, for example, is a civil engineer structural engineer in exeter and exeter's like not a small city but it's it's not like london size obviously and he just knows everyone like he doesn't have social media but everyone phones him up going hi can you come and look at my house and it's like just everyone knows who he is Mm -hmm. that's all i am talking about when i talk about personal branding or self-promotion it's like my accountant has a great reputation he's not putting selfies off on instagram it's just like what can you do to just tell people hi i'm this person i'm really good at my job so own it in your own way totally in your own way one of the things that i think a multi-hyphenate and it wouldn't be standard issue if i didn't talk about this is really good for is women because women have been slashies multi-hyphenates forever particularly if you're a mum totally this is one thing that surprised me about the book because, and I forget this about books, it's like you write the book and it's your thing and then you kind of put it out in the world and then you're like, oh, this is resonating in ways I didn't expect it to. And so I did an event last weekend called Pregnant Then Screwed and it's an incredible <laughs> initiative for oh yeah, 54,000 women a year get pushed out for being pregnant Jesus, or being on maternity. or several people that I know. It was... It was so eye-opening. There were so many stories that just were so shocking. This girl was saying, like, I'm really scared to tell my boss that I've just gone engaged, and she's, like, hiding her ring at work. And because she had seen it happen to other colleagues that they announced their engagement on Facebook, their boss found out, and they were like, well, you're clearly going to have babies. And basically pushed... Yeah, mm-hmm. not going to promote yeah. you and pushed her out. <laughs> and um, and anyway, I, I felt so honoured, actually, to be invited into that space. I don't have children. I actually thought that people would read the book and go oh how irritating that this woman is telling me how to use my time when she doesn't have kids that's kind of what I thought and I wouldn't have blamed anyone because I am coming at it from from a place of I do have my evenings at the moment and I do have my weekends at the moment the surprise of that was amazing and, and I forgot that actually of course side hustling pregnant women have been doing that for so long mm-hmm. I know so many people that have written books and launched businesses in their maternity period and obviously that's not like you don't have to do that, <laughs> but loads of people have. Emma, where can we find out more about you and all of your hyphenates, please? My website is emmagannon.co.uk. I feel really traditional and old-fashioned with my website. Everyone's like, God, you're so old. Like, don't you just have Instagram? But I will say that a top tip is that you have to make sure these days that you own something of your own. You know, like even with a podcast and like you own the RSS feed and the audio and the content. Ugh, yeah, anyway, that's a massive tangent. But find me on my website. That's like my hub and that's where everything lives on. Thanks very much for coming to chat to us and the multi-hyphen method and indeed your first book, Control Lot Delete, available from all good bookshops. Indeed they are. <laughs> 
You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we hope not to smash our racket in anger about the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. It's probably worth mentioning before we crack on with today's main event that the French Open has started. Well, it's starting next week. Qualifying's already started, but we get properly underway next week. Who will win? Nobody knows. That's the beauty of the women's game. Anyway, what we do know is that it's a clay court and no one really likes it. Simona Halep won here last year and has made the finals a few times. She's probably the favourite. Serena's won a couple of times, but she's overcoming a knee injury and it's definitely not her favourite surface. So all of this will play out over the next couple of weeks. But this week... I had the pleasure of catching up with Liz Nicholl, Chief Executive of UK Sport, for the last eight years, having spent a total of 20 years at the organisation. She's about to step down. I met her at a BBC Sport event the other week, asking us to hashtag change the game. Just got to slip that in there. And she told me all about the progress she's seen during her time at the organisation and how the future is looking for British sport. I'm joined by Liz Nicholl, head of UK Sports. Liz, can you tell me a bit about what you do at UK Sport, please? Uh, our role at UK Sport is to inspire the nation through Olympic and Paralympic sport. And we do that by investing in athletes and sports to achieve amazing medal success at the Olympic and Paralympic Games. And by showcasing that success by bringing major events to the nation. And you're stepping down after 20 years? I am. I'm stepping down at the beginning of July uh, after 20 years at UK Sport. It's been an absolutely amazing journey. Obviously, I've seen, seen UK Sport through Sydney and Athens and Beijing and London and Rio uh, and now on to Tokyo, and it's time to hand over to my successor. You have presided over the most successful period of sport in Great Britain you know at an elite level you know you've seen that massive massive change to where we are now so in 96 we were 36 in the medal table and the Olympic medal table with one gold medal um, 15 medals in total and then then the national lottery funding came on board and that that was transformational in terms of giving us the opportunity to invest in athletes and sports to be the best they could be so you know we saw improvements through Sydney and, and Athens and Beijing and in London, you know, it's third in both the Olympic medal table and the Paralympic medal table with 65 Olympic medals and 120 Paralympic medals. And then even better in, in Rio, second in both Olymp- Olympic and Paralympic medal tables uh, behind USA and China. And uh, with uh, 67 Olympic medals and 147 Paralympic medals uh, and with more sports um, winning medals than ever before, more sports winning gold medals than ever before. So there are two, two points of transformation. One was the National Lottery Funding coming on board, which has sustained this success over a very long period, and we need to keep, we continue to rely on that. And secondly was the chance to host the Games in 2012, and that, you know, the injection of um, sort of focus came in in, in 2005 uh, through to 2012, which was an amazing opportunity to showcase success. And how do you think we'll fare in Tokyo next year? Well, we're looking good. We're looking good. We're, we have a we have a system here that we're investing in, where athletes 
want to win. And athletes know that in their sports they've, you know, they've produced uh, medalists, they produce gold medalists, so they believe they can win. So we have, we have, a, uh, we, we always look at the range of possibility, and, and the range of possibility is is looking good. It's, it's slightly higher than actually it was in Rio. But in performance sport, there's no guarantees. So it all has to play out in that arena in Tokyo, in the Olympics and the Paralympics. But um, what we can do is help the athletes and sports be best prepared to do the best they can against the best in the world. You've been one of the most powerful women in the sports industry in the UK for, you know, for many years. How do we get more women into those positions of power? I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word power. <laughs> I would say it's a, it's a, big, it's a big responsibility. Uh, it's a big opportunity to be in a leading role. And, and actually, we are seeing more women coming through now in, in high-performance sport, in sort of administration, but not necessarily in, in high-performance coaching roles. So I, I think that the approach we take to funding athletes, which is to provide equal support to athletes of equal talent, has enabled us to fund as many women as we are funding men over this whole period which means you've got some amazing athletes with great success stories people like Catherine that's come through a medalist has now moved into a very significant role at a national level uh, as UK sports chair so I think we've got more women now better positioned to be able to move into significant roles in future thank you so much you're welcome Thanks very much for listening today. We hope you had a lovely time. Obviously, we had a lovely time. We always do. What a show off, eh? Next week is Gigcast Week, where you'll be hearing Mick and Hannah chat to our very own Sarah Millican, Beverly Knight and Jess Phillips, which was recorded at the Birmingham Podfest back in March. The week after, we'll be rejoined by Hannah, returning to stake her claim on the Iron Throne of podcasting. Not really. But before then, listen out for my fourth and final Sporty Chops in this series I've been doing over May, which is coming up on Sunday. It's going to be an absolute belter, I think. I have got former Arsenal and England footballer Alex Scott, who's obviously now a very successful pundit in her own right for the BBC and Sky Sports. I've got podcaster Kate Borsay from the Offside Rule, who you'll remember came and chatted to us about the Men's World Cup last year. But she knows about everything. She's great. And more. There'll be more. Plus, I'm very much hoping to make an announcement too. So keep your ears peeled. But until next time, stay frosty. Standard Issue for All Women.